Hello, welcome to Objection to the Forum. This is Justin Humphreys, and this week we have Mike Winstead with us. Thank you for joining. Yeah, no problem. Mike, I was excited to have you on because of your background in development on both mm -hmm. the commercial and residential side. And I was hoping you could kind of talk to everybody about your experience in those fields and, and kind of discuss a little bit about uh, where you've been and where you see things going these days. All right, well, uh, you know, I think... Uh, We've been in development construction, like you said, for a long time. I guess in the late 90s, I actually started in property management. Um, development construction kind of came at the same time for me around 2000. Um, we started working with, uh, I used to work with some guys that used to play football the, uh, named Bostic Brothers. They were uh, one of them. John played, Bostic for the. As Jeff. For, the, the, one of them was the Hogs, the, right? The, the former Redskins. Uh, former Redskins. So I used to have a. I think it was either John or Jeff uh, autograph um, that somebody ran into him. Maybe it was somebody around this area, but I was yeah. a huge Redskins fan when I was a, a, a kid and I used to play football. I was a, a guard on the offensive line. I believe that's what I think Boston was either center or guard. And uh, I remember uh, having that. That was kind of a cool thing. So that's awesome that you were. Yeah. yeah was, it, it was probably Jeff. He was the hog. His brother Joe played for uh, the Cardinals. So they were both Clemson guys, both really, really uh, good football players. I, but uh, we worked with them a while, of course, uh, after that, actually a lot of apartment guys worked with them and ended up sprouting off on their own and, um, and running their own deal, but I did probably the early 2000s, so um, that's where it started. We developed, build multifamily, manage multifamily, and, and you know, we've just been doing it for about 20 years. So. And that's what I was going to ask you when you're talking about starting in property management. So were you dealing with large you know, residential complexes or apartment buildings, essentially? And is that, is that what got you involved in starting the property management end of things? You know, probably like a lot, of, a lot of folks do. You know, when I got out of school, I wanted to be in real estate. So I bought a few rental houses and I managed them myself. Well, that ended up going, uh, for me, I ended up working for a property management firm, which did multifamily. So uh, it was an apartment management firm uh, that I worked for. And that's kind of like about my wife's family is yeah. involved in property management in the Durham area, and uh -huh. and they do it's kind of similar. You know, they've got some uh, single family homes, they've got some duplexes, some some multifamily. They've got I think they have some they may have some condos or apartment buildings, but it's more of kind of the the one offs for individual investors or property owners is the type of things they're doing. Well, they're managing for the the owner. Yeah. That's not kind of a, a, a large company type thing. But, you know, I, a lot of areas in here, you know, you'll have the, the company will build, especially in student housing. Mm. Well, you know, you'll have one entity owns all the units um, or the whole building essentially just rents them out as individual apartments. Right. Is that kind of what you're doing um, now with some of your more recent projects? Well, you know, we, we, we do quite a bit, but we, um, of course, we have different partners. Um, some apartment deals we manage ourselves, which, yeah, we have, you know, a two or 300 unit apartment complex and uh, the management company is in the clubhouse. They're actually running the site and the management uh, employees work for our group. Um, of course, we, we do some work with some other guys who manage, uh, manage uh, some of the projects. You know, we don't do all of ours, but, you know, we have quite a bit. You know, we're um, building and developing probably six to 7,000 units right now. So when you spread that out, we've got a lot of different management groups, and some we do ourselves and some we don't. So from the real estate nerd perspective, <clears throat> I'm interested when you do a, a large-scale apartment building, are you setting it up kind of as a condo with – with hundreds of units or is it just one structure and then the the units or the the apartments are for your internal purposes as far as how you segregate it out to rent to 
to the the tenants. Uh, yeah, yeah, we don't condominium. You know, they're not condoed out yeah. is, is probably the term, but uh, we, we do them as one entity. You know, the apartment complex is one LLC, um, and then it's just rented individually, so uh, not condoed out. Yep. Yeah. And so then I guess when you're doing a lease, you know, it would just be. You know, room 101, or not room. Yeah, yeah, be, apartment 101, apartment 102, so it would just be on and on. So Yeah, and I know that you're involved in several different states. Mm-hmm. And so how, how would you compare um, development in, in kind of eastern North Carolina versus Georgia and, and some of the other places where you've, where you've worked? Yeah, you know, we've been uh, mostly in the southeastern states, so Tennessee, North Carolina, Atlanta, South Carolina. And, and from a business perspective, North Carolina is one of the best places we work. Now, I could single out some some towns, which I will not do, which is they're no fun to work in. But, you know, the majority of, of North Carolina uh, is, is nice to work with. You know, North Carolina is a good state for business. Uh, and you may not, some people may not think that, but when you go work with other states, you soon realize that, that when it comes to uh, property tax and, and just all around uh, working with the state of North Carolina, it's one of the best. Um, and, now, and now I grew up in North Carolina, so yeah. I'm a little partial. Well, and I know you, so you spent some time, I guess, as a county commissioner and, and was it Guilford? Uh, Guilford, Guilford County. Guilford County. Yeah. So, I mean, I imagine that would be beneficial in being a developer to kind of see things from the government perspective and to kind of watch how it works. And I know a lot of times these decisions are made, at least starting off at mm-hmm. the planning boards and, and things of that nature. But, you know, the appeals, a lot of times it goes up to the uh, the, the commission or the mm-hmm. board to make the decisions. Um, did that give you any kind of added perspective, seeing um, what the, what how the government processes and handles these, these decisions? Well, you know, it, it certainly helped. I mean, seeing how government is run and the way that different commissioners think, uh, and, and get to the uh, answers they have. But, um, you know, I think before I started, I had a pretty good idea. You know, we work with quite a bit of municipalities, as you can imagine, going through developing and zoning and trying to get projects approved. Um, you know, being a commissioner did help me just understand uh, some some facets of, of, of why government works the way it does. But, um, you know, uh, it's probably, again, a lot of decisions uh, you know, government uh, is hard to work with. Uh, you know, as a developer, and, and when I got on the board, I thought I could help with that. Uh, when like I was going to get on and start uh, pushing things through, and, well, yeah, well yeah. you think you could explain things in a way that might make a difference. But uh, you know, at the time I was a commissioner, we were a minority on the board, and um, you know, we had a, a large number of commissioners, eleven, which you can imagine, eleven commissioners on a board, and, and everybody wanting to talk is. Uh, is I'll bet is those meetings to, were brutal. Well, you know, they start at five and end at twelve. You know, and I'm not sure we got anything accomplished. So, yeah. you know, but they were there were some brutal ones, and I was there for eight years. So you can imagine. I serve as a, a town attorney for for a local beach town, and, and their meetings are fantastic. Lasts about an hour or so. But for some of the the larger towns that I've that I've done, I mean, it would be what you're talking about seven hour meetings, oh, yeah. and just kind of like buckle up and marathon public comment sections. And, well, you know, when we become a commissioner and we're ahead, all of a sudden we think we know everything, right? and we want everybody to hear us talking so you know that's what happens when you're a politician you know I'm not sure we got anything done yeah uh, but so what's your approach in rezoning situations do you bring in legal counsel or is it something where you handle it on your own or I know some people work with uh, planning consultants or mm-hmm. do you just kind of mix it up on a case-by-case basis 
Well, you know, when I first started 20 years ago, I liked to do it myself, right? So we'd, we'd hire an engineer who'd help us design the project. We'd sit with them, we'd go, we'd talk in front of the, the board and we'd try to get it done. But you know, it's gotten so difficult just because of what you have to do through the process. You know, used to you go to one or two meetings and it was done, but now you're required to have uh, neighborhood meetings beforehand. You're required to go through two or three different committees and it's gotten so complicated in, in uh, and you know when you're going through it and you're and you're trying to get something done you want to make sure it's handled right in case there's a problem down the road so it's so long answer to your question is we've started to hire outside help to have to do that consultants attorneys and we usually let them take it through yeah. can you take us behind the scenes a little bit in a neighborhood meeting that doesn't sound like a, a, a pleasant situation we very rarely go to one where anybody is in favor of what you're doing, right? You know, because nobody wants you building in their backyard. Um, so saying that, you know, we try to only tackle areas or, or locations we think make sense for our project. You know, ultimately, we want to be nice neighbors. We want everybody to work together. Uh, so if it's, a, if it's a location we feel like it makes sense, then, of course, we go and, and, and you know, we, we get berated and, and put yeah. down. And, but, we, but, we, but we're very cordial and we try to show what the, the positives are, and uh, hopefully that makes sense to some people. Because I can't imagine, you know, ever, you know, everybody's busy. I mean, every, everybody's got stuff going on, especially, you know, it seems to, people never see, things never seem to slow down. It always seems mm-hmm. to, to pick up. And, uh, you know, where I, where I lived, um, you know, a few years back, there was a lot of uh, growth and development. It was kind of that off of Station Road area. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, you know, by the Sea Spray um, area. They, they took the trailer park, Wheel Estates, and uh, it's, they're turning it into kind of a, a, a big residential project. I think some mixed use stuff over there. Mm-hmm. And they were always having neighborhood meetings. And we were getting letters like we need to go up there and voice our opposition. You know, there was no letters that said, "Hey, you know, this we, we think this is going to be a good project. It's going to help our property values. You know, you ought to come down there and let everybody, you know, get, come voice your support." It was all it was a, kind of a call to arms, mm-hmm. so to speak, with all these letters we got. And and I think it's what you said is exactly right. I mean, people that people probably the supportive people or the people that don't care aren't going to come to a meeting. No, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's the the folks that the same folks that that are going to come to. Uh, uh, a county commission meeting to go sign up for the public comments. That's, I guess, that's the kind of folks that are going to the neighborhood. Yeah, meeting. and it's gotten so it's gotten bad now because you know now with social media, you have. I think you know we've gone to some meetings where you have petitions against us, and you know we have people signing it who are from Washington State, North Dakota, you know, because they've signed it on on social yeah. media, and all of a sudden you got five thousand signatures against you, and five of them that live nearby, and the rest of them live in another state. But that's just that's just what we face. Well, so. What's the significance to you as far as the petitions? Because like, I, I know that I know there are certain situations in the zoning context where where petitions against can kind of trigger uh, heightened scrutiny. What is it like an eighty percent approval by the boards required in some mm-hmm. rezoning situations if there's if there's uh, opposition? But I wouldn't think somebody from you know you know you can have some bots or some people from from Washington State or whatever to throw their two cents in on a local land use decision. Well, you wouldn't think, but you know, I think ultimately, what, what you know, what's trying, what the opposition is trying to do is uh, just, you know, when you're a county commissioner and you get a book of signatures and you really don't have, to, you know, you don't go through them. You just see that there's a, a lot of people who have signed against it. It's just hoping that the, the elected officials see the sheer number of people that either show up or that sign the petition that gets them thinking that it's something that they, you know, they might should not approve. So. Yeah. Does that kind of does that situation exist in the commercial and residential context? 
Like for if you're doing a commercial development, mm-hmm. then you're going to rezone um, for whatever you're doing. Do you have to have neighborhood meetings with the, the surrounding shop owners and, and commercial businesses, or is that only when you're in a residential? No, no, I think it applies for any rezoning now. I think a lot of a lot of the municipalities do it. Uh, neighborhood meetings are required, and I think uh, as part of that, you're required to send out notices to everybody within, say, a, a one or one mile radius or so many feet, and, and that would obviously include people nearby, everybody would be invited within that radius. So, yeah. I imagine the commercial context is probably a lot less resistance that you're running into for, for those types of situations. Just because, I mean, I guess local businesses, as long as it's not something that's going to interrupt their their traffic or, or interrupt their ability to conduct their businesses, they're not going to set time away from, from work to go in and, and complain about about a, a new business. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, unless that radius happens to have some residential in it who's upset about traffic, that sort of thing. So if, if residential plays a part, then it's probably, uh, it does it does matter. Are you having to do a lot of traffic impact studies? Uh, almost every time. And and what is, is there kind of a threshold of what they're looking for? Uh, or is it just they just want to see what the potential impact could be? Yeah, I, I don't know what the threshold is. I, I, you know, it's traffic impact studies are funny because every almost every traffic impact study you do shows that it operates badly and it's going to operate badly, yeah. right? So, so, you know, really, I think the the hope is doing the traffic impact study shows the traffic and figures out a way that you can do improvements to make it better as you develop. So, and I'm not is sure. Is that so the government can have recommendations for maybe exactions they're going to require? Or we're going to make you put in this turn lane. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We usually have. You know, part of the traffic impact studies to decide what off-site improvements that we may have to do for a for a property. So uh, that's one of the goals. I'd say in general, yeah, it's it's difficult to find really many places in town anymore. You'd say, well, yeah, the traffic flow is outstanding and things. Well, it usually good. operates as an F, and it's going to operate as an F, and uh, so so that's just one of the hurdles you face. So. You go in there in your meetings, be like, look, you know, traffic's bad now, and it's going to stay bad. It's yeah, and a lot of times we just have to say, you know, a lot of times when you're developing a piece of land, a lot of land development we do is a down zone from the current zoning which you think would help like we've, we've got a site now that's zoned for commercial shopping center where we're trying to rezone it for a multi-family site now the traffic study will show that it's going to produce our ours will produce less traffic than what's a what you could build by right there and you think that would matter but that doesn't usually usually go either so so i think that's an interesting concept because mm-hmm. you know if something's you know the the highest density or the highest I guess density, I don't know would be the, the correct um, term for it, but like let's say just, just straight up commercial. Mm-hmm. Like you, you could build, you know, a, a single family residence in that zoning district and live there if you wanted for the most part. But, but you know, but if you've got, um, but you know, people typically don't want to do that for, for a multitude of reasons. But, you know, but the, but the inverse of that's not true where, you know, you can't put a, a Walmart in landfall or, or in, you know, in a, in a residential neighborhood. Um, so it's kind of interesting to me that it's like if you could put this this lower density project or you could put this single family or multifamily project in a commercial space, why would you go through the effort of having the zoning um, le- lessened, you know, or, or kind of restricted to to the multifamily residential? Yeah, uh, well, you know, a true commercial zone usually will not allow a residential house. And, you know, there may be some commercial zones that do, but most commercial zones that are truly commercial zoning, I don't think allow a residential house. But, um, you know, again, you know, you would, again, I think that the point is that uh, if you have a commercial zone property and we're there to down zone it and the traffic shows that it would be less, you know, our 
feeling is that that would be a benefit to a traffic study, and it's not usually. How do you think property valuation plays into the role of these? I mean, I know that's, you know, for the kind of the, the NIMBY folks, like, you know, the not in my backyard or however you mm-hmm. want to put it, you know, their concern isn't typically property value, although sometimes it is, but typically it's just the, the increased congestion or, or the, you know, we don't, we don't want all this in our neighborhood. Um, but I imagine the commercial context and some with residential, the concern is, well, how is this going to affect my property value? Um, do you have to, is that part of the presentations that you typically do, like bringing on appraisers and saying, we think that, that uh, adding this housing will, will add this value to the area, or if it's a commercial development, we think that, that this will increase the residential home values being close to, to these, store, these stores or whatever the businesses may be? Yeah, yeah we, cer- we certainly have to bring in appraisals. If it's a quasi-judicial type meeting, you have to have experts there to testify as, as part of the, the meeting. But um I mean, we very rarely have an appraiser that says a nice apartment community is going to devalue land. Um, you know, especially today with what we do in an apartment community, you know, and, and, and what our values are, um, it's hard to devalue something that's next to you, unless it's a very high-priced uh, neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, you know, today we're building apartments with with every spa service you can, you can imagine. So, you know, the tax values are high. Um, the property values are high, and a lot of times on a per unit basis, they could be higher than the residential around us. So, so you're saying you're, you're building an apartment building set with every spa service? Is it- well, you know, the apartments these days have everything. I mean, we got fitness rooms, pet parks, uh, amenity centers, uh, you, you know, Starbucks coffee. In uh, the apartments? Uh, well, down in the clubhouse. Gotcha. You, you know, the clubhouses are done with cafes in them. So, you know, about every service you can think of is now available at an apartment site. Uh, you know, you have your swimming pools um, and, and every kind of outdoor amenity you can think of. You know, now we're doing um, bocce courts. You know, we're yeah. doing pickleball. No. We're doing horseshoes. It, you name it, we're, yeah. we've done it. Now, is this in student housing, or is this in, um, or, is, or is this for, or is this just standard in any type of just housing? Standard conventional housing. You know, they're doing it in the student housing too. But now it's now. You know, I think it's funny. We started it in the student housing. We don't do as much student housing now as we used to. But all that amenity type thinking has moved to the conventional housing. Yeah, I was blown away. I I went to South Carolina, um, the, the the Gamecocks, not not Clemson, like I guess the Hogs and and whatnot. And the rivals, uh, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's had been going our way <laughs> recently. But I went and stayed at at the Marriott downtown one weekend for a football game, and it was right next to this student complex. I guess they they renovated an old office building downtown mm-hmm. called the Hub, and I looked out the window, and the Hub has the student housing place has a, a rooftop pool with uh, a big scoreboard TV and they had like a bar set up on the um, on the they had a swim up bar and they had like another bar set up in the corner and they had like all this this you know amazing stuff and I was thinking you know how did I miss out on like my places I lived in college were, were dumps you know right, for, right. for the most yeah, part yeah. I was like, this, this is pretty nice yeah I don't I don't know when it happened but you know student housing about 10 or 15 years ago started to be heavily amenitized and uh and then the rents go along with it. You know, we're, you know, obviously there's some high rents for that type of product. Um, but yeah, I'm like you back when I went to school in Chapel Hill. You know, I lived in the fraternity and the floor was getting ready to fall in. Yeah. And you know, we didn't. The rent wasn't that high. But you know, it's not the same now. You know, maybe we're spoiling these kids. You know? Yeah. I, yeah, I yeah think you, when you case. start off like that, how do you get any better? You know, you. And so you mentioned kind of the values of, of kind of what you're putting in. So is that just something that's expected across the board in, a, in kind of multi, in multifamily living? It's like, all right, we're going to 
have a we've got to have a Starbucks. We got to, and I mean, it doesn't have to be Starbucks. It could be, you know, I guess a PCJ would do or, mm-hmm. or anything like that. But it's like we got to have a a, a gym. We got to have. You know, I, I saw one place um, that had a um, in their play a theater. A lot, a lot of places are having theaters now. I think that's kind of a cool yeah. feature. Um, and is that just kind of expected these days? And yeah, I think you know to compete with the pro- other product that's out there and your competitors, you have to have it. If you don't have it, you're not going to get the rents you want to get. And you know, obviously, they're going to go somewhere else. So, so yeah, I mean, all of a sudden, everybody does it. You have to do it to compete. So you get into a, a cycle where you're trying to one up the last person. So. In the commercial sphere, are there things that your commercial tenants are expecting these days, like the the I mean, a commercial tenant's not going to care about a gym or, mm-hmm. or something like that, but are there certain amenities that, that they're looking for when making decisions whether to, to invest? You know, I, I don't know. We don't do any commercial development. So, I, you know, I don't think commercial space would be like residential. You know, my guess is it's, it's more dependent on where you are in the, in the rent and that sort of thing or the lease payment. So, I, I, no, I don't think commercial is amenitized like, like residential. Are you running into much, much opposition with trying to build multifamily um, in, or I'm sure it, it varies from jurisdiction or municipality to municipality. Mm-hmm. And there's some of the people that are kind of the, kind of the roll up the ladder context, or we don't want, you know, the, the, all these folks coming in cause it could be traffic or it could be whatever it is. But do you find uh, much resistance in your typical project? You know, if you have to rezone a piece of land, anywhere or most places in North Carolina there's resistance and, and typically it's a, a town that says we've got too many apartments we don't need it um, you know we don't want the extra traffic and you know because I guess as you said I was a commissioner I understand where they're coming from because most of the people that vote for them are, are, are saying this to them right so so they have to they have a fine line I, I think that's typically what I say when we go try to rezone a piece of land we're trying to do it in a place where we think it makes sense where we think there's not going to be you know you kind of got to understand what the politician has to go through so you know we, we try to put it in a spot where you're not going to have a lot of a lot of people complaining about it um, obviously it's not hard to do it's hard to do uh, depending on where you are so yeah we, we do run into a lot of resistance so. is there outside the do you is the primary battle um, the zoning situation, or do you have people, um, you know, trying to challenge your building permits and kind of there every step of the way, or is the main? Or is it's essentially if you if you if you're going to develop where it's zoned multifamily, you feel like it's going to be um, pretty smooth process. Yeah, I mean, once the zoning, if the zoning is done, then the process is pretty easy. I mean, we very rarely have anybody challenging permits and the right to build. I mean, that's that's not usually done. Are you doing much um, coastal development? So are you running into like kind of CAMA issues and? Uh, we, we do quite a bit of coastal development. We have obviously wetland issues, um, but yeah, we, uh, you know, Diener and some of the other municipalities along the coast, uh, we, you have to dot your I's and cross your T's, right? Because you run into it a lot. So, yeah, we, we make sure we, we are. With the wetlands, uh, is it still the process of you hire your own delineator and you submit it to the Corps for, for review? Same same process, yeah. And then they review it, come out to the site with the with the one who did the study and agree or not agree, uh, and, and then they move forward. Yeah. Well, I mean, that sounds like, you know, kind of a exciting opportunity to, to build in some of the cases. I know that's that's where where I experienced a lot of the we've got too many condos. And mm-hmm. A lot of times it was your 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 waterfront or your 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 coastal properties that are in the vicinity to where the the 
Cam Act applies. Right, right. Um, you, you know, I guess what, what were what were kind of the, some of the sensitive areas in Guilford? Were there certain areas where like we don't want this built here? Were there certain? Uh... You know, I don't think. Uh, I, you know, I was back in four to twelve, and um, I don't think we had as many sensitive issues regarding. Well, you know, we didn't have that around Guilford County like you do here on the coast when you talk about wetlands and that sort of thing. Um, so I don't remember there being you know, the sensitive issues in Guilford County when it came to zoning was just are you putting this in the right place and, and is everybody happy with it and how can we make it better or, or you know how can we make it a better project so not the same issues probably as here and you know Guilford's got um, you know there's quite a bit of colleges in the area I guess you've got you know UNCG you've got uh, you know, there's a few um, I don't know is Elon in Greensboro that's in Burlington but we got A and T. Uh, UNCG, Guilford College, High Point University, which is nearby, which is, a, is becoming a, a, a good-sized university. Do um, the colleges weigh in much on collegiate housing as far as what, what they expect, or, or are there any kind of additional considerations whenever you're, you're gearing towards student housing? You know, really the universities didn't, uh, didn't have anything. If we were building close to a college, they had very little input. I, I think typically Typically, universities didn't mind the housing. Now, if they have a housing on campus that they can't can't fill, you know, maybe they, they yeah. voice a little more opposition. But that's typically, I don't think, the case with the state-run schools. You know, if you can provide housing uh, for their uh, their folks, then that's less that they have to provide, and they can focus on study space, not living space. Yeah, and that's but I think that's changed. I think you know now they they look at it as more of a community. They're trying to do the housing, so. You know, going forward, I don't know how it's going to be, but they usually didn't voice too much much opposition for us. And I think that's been kind of one of the, the more modern trends with the student housing seems to be that the, the universities are growing and the, the dorm space just isn't adequate mm-hmm. any, any longer. Like, I know that's certainly the case, and uh, it seems to be the case in UNC Wilmington. You see all the student housing popping up in the vicinity of the college. And I know it was in, um, you know, back in the, the South Carolina days, we had, we had, uh, I was jealous. I had some of my classmates staying at the Holiday Inn, mm-hmm. and they had that was kind of near. Oh, yeah. yeah, they had uh, they had room service and or, or maids and all that. It was just kind of a, kind of a nice setup. But but you know, with that situation, I, mean, I imagine that they would be. It's like if you're going to keep taking on more students, there has to be somewhere for them to go. Yeah, you know, I certainly don't know how the university allocates their dollars, but you know, there has to be a, a thought that um, you know, if we can focus our dollars on learning space and not have to focus so much on living space, maybe that's a better deal. Now, um, do you do you put in like a library for the, in in your student housing, and so when the parents are coming to move in, so this is where your your child's going to be studying? All, you know, no, no, we, we never did a library. You know, we did have the uh, the movie theaters, and of course, it was. I think it was, it was me being in the parent, parent position, saying what you and I were just talking about. We go there and say, "Wow, how do you, how do you live in this kind yeah. of thing?" You know, I didn't get this when I was in school. You know, yeah. now I'm paying for you to be in a spa service uh, while you're in school. So it's it's a lot different now. So spa, be interesting yeah. to see how these kids turn out in about twenty years. Yeah, and and when you, when you say like spa service, I keep thinking of like the. The, the Umstead or, or I forgot what the place is uh, Grandover and stuff oh, like yeah, that yeah. in the Greensboro area but like so is that just a term yeah yeah, yeah. I, I just use that as a term because you pretty much it's like you're at a resort spa yeah. you know so you know you got the same amenities the same type of thing you know you're lived you're there to study but you yeah. get all this on the side which is really nice yeah yeah, I was thinking, yeah that that that'd be fantastic mm-hmm. well so what what are what projects do you have going on right now 
like I say, we're pretty busy. You know, we had like 12 or 15 different communities up around North and South Carolina, probably three or four right here along the, uh, the coast. So um, they're all, they range from probably 200 units to 340 unit sites uh, uh, spread out around North, uh, usually, you know, around Charlotte, Raleigh, Wilmington, Greenville, Charleston. So we cover the North and South Carolina areas. Are you holding on to the projects and managing them after you build them? You know, we every project we do, we do it assuming we're going to hold it. Um, now, saying that, I'll say in the last year or so, you know, there's been quite a bit of value placed on apartments, which, which, you know, gets your partners thinking about selling. So we've sold some, but everything we do, we're assuming we're going to keep it. Now, we, we manage some of them. Our partners manage some of them. So it just depends on the, the partnership on who's managing it. Are you having difficulty navigating being a... Uh, property manager during COVID? Uh, well, you know, luckily I have somebody who runs the management and they handle it, right? Gotcha. But there are, there have been, uh, you know, a lot of obstacles for everybody during COVID. It's changed, uh, changed a lot about how things are done and it may have changed things going forward on how things are done. Sure. So. I mean, and specifically what I was, or what I'm thinking about when asking that question is kind of the, the CDC's decision to interject itself into landlord-tenant relationships mm-hmm. with, with the whole thing of if you if you submit the affidavit saying you're trying to pay rent, mm-hmm. you know, then then nobody can evict you. And from what I understand, I know that was set to expire at the end of March, but it looks like uh, that's going to be extended out. And I'm surprised that it hasn't been challenged yet because it kind of seems, one, outside of the federal government's kind of regulatory powers to get into local state contract issues mm-hmm. and, and then... You know, just secondly, I mean, it's not, it's not a, it's just a regulation by an administrative branch of the, the federal government. How are they going to tell people they don't have to pay the rent? But I know it's put a lot of pressure on kind of some of your, your smaller investors that might have a couple rental properties with, with mortgages. Mm-hmm. And now the tenants don't have to pay the rent. Kind of, it's been going on for, you know, close to a year now. Yeah, you know, we uh, luckily, you know, I'll say over the past year across the board, our multifamily, we've probably had less than 5% delinquency even through the COVID, which is good for us. You, yeah. you know, e- even though uh, that rule is there, um, a lot of residents are still paying their rent. You know, we have some that have, like you said, uh, some properties that have been holdovers not paying. I think some are taking advantage of it. Um, so for us, it hadn't be, been a big problem. Uh, I think for the smaller, which is, uh, you know, again, for the smaller mom and pop, like you said, if you have a, uh, a couple rental properties and they're not paying you and they're not leaving and you have to pay a mortgage, it's a big problem. Um, so it's a problem, but it's also a problem for the person not paying because nobody addresses the fact that sooner or later they're going to owe the money. They're not, you know, they're, they don't owe the money. They're just not having to pay. So at some point they're going to owe it. It's going to be put on their credit report and it's not going to help them down the road, which has not been addressed at all. So I'm not sure the way it's being handled is the best way for a lot of people, even the people who it's, you know, it's supposed to help. Yeah. Do you find it's, it's more difficult to maintain a, uh, a kind of a student housing type project as opposed to just typical multifamily that's designed for maybe middle-class families or, or, you know, student housing is a lot more difficult. Um, mainly, you know, student housing is run kind of like a business. You, you have to hit, especially if you're doing new development, you know, if you're building a new apartment complex, you have to be ready for August of a specific school year. You know, if you miss it, then all of a sudden you have people you've rented apartments to obviously don't have anywhere to live. Um, so they could go somewhere else. And then you may 
you know, have put yourself in a bad position for another year until the next school year comes along. So there's a lot more risk in yeah. student housing, which is, is, you know, I enjoy conventional housing more because you don't have that type of risk. Yeah. And I guess which promotes kind of the cyclical nature. Like if, you know, students aren't looking for housing in October unless they got kicked out of somewhere or had a falling That's out. right. And so do you use the model? So I used to have a, a student housing um, condos, kind of an, an investment. Mm-hmm. And... You know, there were two different ways that some of the owners would rent them. Some would say, we're going to just rent the unit like you traditionally would. Mm-hmm. Others would say, we're going to rent out a room within the unit. And so you would just kind of market it as, you know, just one flat rate, no bills. Just You just pay X amount per room mm-hmm. at this um, at this. Um, pay it to us. And, you know, I think there's benefits of that. You know, one, it's, if you got, it's better to have one of three not paying rent than, than you know, a whole, mm-hmm. a whole unit not paying rent. But then you kind of got into the, a lot of the relationship business, mm-hmm. you know, where like somebody doesn't like anybody anymore or, or they're not getting along. And happens I, you know, every time. Yeah. So that's, that doesn't matter whether it's three, that that's going to be the same. And I guess in student housing, no matter what, then it's, it doesn't matter how you rent them out. Yeah. Well, we still manage and we still own student housing and everything we do is rented by the room. And, you know, partly because we have to get a parent to co-sign, right? And, and mm-hmm. no parent really wants to co-sign for another child. No. So um, everything we do is by the room. And, and it is, like I said, it's like a business. So the staff has, you know, has to deal with those problems all the time. You know, they have to match roommates because, you know, if you live in a three bedroom, you don't know two other people, you're having to put people yeah. together. So it, it, it again, there's, there's, Many different ways. It's a lot harder than conventional houses. So matching, are you just doing it at random, or are you looking at people's personalities and trying? You know, to I can't out? remember exactly how our management group does it now, but we used to have a questionnaire just just for likes. Do you, yeah. know, do you like soccer? Do you like? But you know, it was just to try to do it the best we could yeah. uh, to similar interest. But um, I, I'm not sure how now now how we're actually going through that process of matching. Gotcha. It's for people a lot smarter than me. So. Well, kind of one of the last things I want to talk about is just the the, constru- the construction landscape these days, mm-hmm. and how a lot of the times when I'm talking to my clients that are that are in construction, what I hear a lot is, you know, I, I try to get under contract and the price goes up every day, you know, if it's what they're saying, and it's oh, yeah. and, and crazy amounts. Like I think somebody told me that sheetrock just went up twenty percent or something of, of the like, and how, how, I guess you're you're dealing with it from a different perspective because mm-hmm. you're not, you know, I guess you're you're building for your own use most of the time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we're building and we're the owners, but we still, you know, you and I know what your your client, I guess, was saying. You know, you start out with a budget, but unfortunately, lumber has been a big issue the past you know year ever since COVID. I think what you know what happened during COVID was everybody went home and started doing home products, and then lumber started going out to to homeowners, and there was less out. So you know, all of a sudden, lumber has probably gone from and it's probably tripled or quadrupled in price from where it was a year or so well, ago so I'm glad you brought that up because you know I'm sure there's it seems like there's always a multitude of reasons why things happen mm-hmm. you know but I was just kind of wondering it just seemed kind of crazy to me well sheetrock what's the driver of that and lumber I would have never guessed I mean I remember that the tariffs were supposedly driving it for a while because I guess a lot of times the foreign you know the tariff wars of wool tax your products and they'll tax ours. I understood that driving like steel and some of the some products but then you know lumber who, who'd have thought that, that lumber but I've heard that from a lot of residential contractors saying that uh, complaining about draw schedules and construction mm-hmm. loans because I guess the, the traditional draw schedule um, kind of d- 
doesn't appreciate how expensive framing is these days or how mm -hmm. the cost of framing that now that's a larger percentage of, uh, of the cost of building just because of lumber being so expensive. Yeah, you know, lumber's a hard one to figure because I think right now uh, the mills are taking advantage of it because they can. I, I think there is supply. You know, I just don't, I think they're withholding it and putting yeah. it out for their own good, which, you know, I, I don't know, it's business, right? So, it, you know, they can do it because they can. Sooner yeah. or later, you would hope it would lighten up a little bit. And the demand wouldn't be there, so they could start putting it out at a little better price. But yeah, it is a big deal right now. Yeah. Is, is there anything else? I mean, I guess it just sounds like it's pretty much just across the board: steel, lumber, sheetrock. Uh, lumber's anything. been the big one, but you know, it, it's funny when you get into the building business and you're doing it as long as I have. You, you know, you always talk about the bad things, but you know, there's good things. The rates are low, right? So, so things always fluctuate. You know, lumber will go down, the rates will go up. So there's always plus balances. You, you tend to talk about the bad, and never talk about. Yeah good but material prices are going up it's more expensive than it used to be to build uh, but we do have some offsets in some certain areas well that brings up a good point <clears throat> you were talking about the you know the benefits of kind of the current the, the current environment with you know the, the rates you know pretty about as low as they could possibly be mm -hmm. when you're doing a project are you typically and like I'm talking about I'm saying a project like a, a residential housing project mm -hmm. are you are you kind of are you Financing through, I mean, I guess you've got your construction phase financing, but then are you doing like a, you know, do they let you get in at like a fixed rate or is it one of those kind of like balloon type loans that you got to renew every every few years? Uh, you know, we do construction financing using the, the uh, most of the banks you've heard of. Um, you know, once the property is built and stabilized, it typically the loan is put into the permanent market, which today for us is Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So. Um, even though most construction lenders have a perm option, the, the ultimate goal is to get it out and refinance it, get it to Fannie and Freddie. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the equity comes back to you. And, and the big thing once you do that is it's non-recourse loans, right? So, yeah. so actual guarantors don't have their, uh, their name on it. Yeah. So um, uh, construction lending for a couple years, then out to the permanent market. Yeah. And I, had no, I, I didn't realize that you could get a, a Fannie or a Freddie backed loan for kind of a, for a commercial project like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think the majority, uh, you know, insurance companies do it as, as, as well. But, you know, the, the best terms, the best rates are typically through the government, Fannie and Freddie. So you're saying so like your, your typical or your, I didn't realize that insurance companies were giving loans for. Yeah, yeah, they'll do it. They really do it. I they, like State usually Farm as a bank or, or something that I thought was kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, insurance companies are big, you know, for the, they have to find investments just like everybody. So, um, you know, they're willing to do permanent lending on apartment deals. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, almost all multifamily uh, deals are, are, I'd say a majority now, are put through Fannie and Freddie. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Mike, I appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing your wisdom. And it was, it was great talking to you, and I certainly learned a lot. And uh, good luck with everything you got going on. Well, I appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Thanks. for having me.